Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McLenahan, and today my guests and I will discuss the government's recently published strategy for children's social care reform, Stable Homes Built on Love. The strategy is in response to the Independent Review of Children's Social Care, which was published in May 2022. And I mention that now because the review will be referred to throughout our discussion. We'll look at what the strategy means for children and young people in care, those who care for them and for social workers working in children's services. With me today to discuss the government's strategy are social workers Becca Pierre and Joe Hanley. Becca is a care-experienced adult and Basel England professional officer, and Joe is a lecturer with the Open University and a member of the Basel Policy, Ethics and Human Rights Committee. And I'm also really pleased to be joined by Sam Turner, Head of Policy and Public Affairs at the charity Kinship. Joe, Sam, Becca, how are you all doing? Becca, how are you, first of all? Welcome back. Thank you. I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but to be honest, I think as someone who is care experienced, I'm still reeling and still processing last week's report and what that means. So uh, I don't want to scale it, but that's where I'm at. Okay, thank you for being upfront and honest. Joe, how are you doing? Uh, Yeah, okay. It's end of the week, so my energy levels probably aren't their highest, but all good. Okay, well, let's let's work on that. So yes, it's Friday <laughs> afternoon. It's Friday the 10th of February. This episode will be going online, if you listen to it straight away, the 23rd of February. So there will be a little bit of oh. lag between now and then. Sorry, sorry um, if I accidentally peeled back the curtain there a little bit. <laughs> uh, don't worry, don't worry. There is, there is, there is no illusions. Um, Sam, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I've treated myself to a second coffee of the day just to, you know, perk me up a little bit for the afternoon. But, um, but no, I think similarly, it's it's been a lot happened the past couple of weeks, so... Yeah, I think feeling a, a little bit tired after after having to run through everything. Sure, sure. Well, let's get into it then. Um, the government argues that its strategy will rebalance children's social care away from what it regards as costly crisis intervention to what it terms more meaningful and effective help for families. The government contends that achieving this will require a major reset that puts love and stable relationships at the heart of what children's social care does. You'll be hard-pushed to find anyone who argues against having a greater focus on early intervention and prevention to avert problems becoming crises. But I want to start by asking whether the government has put its money where its mouth is. Is it going to achieve what it said it needs to achieve? The independent review called for £2.6 billion over five years. Has the government committed adequately to fund the changes needed? I think it's clear that the government has not put its money where its mouth is. I think that the fact that less than 8% of what was recommended has been given is absolutely shambolic. And it speaks to the lack of value and the lack of priority that this government puts onto children in care. I think, again, we've heard lots of excuses here about, um, you know, debt or, or there simply not being enough money. But let me just make a brief comparison. Last year, the government committed £930 million Um, just for advertising space for the upcoming election to get the public on their side. So they're willing to spend almost five times as much on billboards, on fancy slogans to get people on their side, yet they're not willing to get onto the side of the vulnerable. There's no lack of money in the UK, you know, being the fifth largest economy, maybe lower with the self-torpedoing that politicians have been doing to the UK lately. But, you know, uh, It's really not about money. We've seen time and time again that the government can pull money out when it wants to, as as Becca just pointed out. You know, what we really need is a competent and less corrupt government. I mean, even today I was reading the government had to pay, what, like 2.3 billion to the EU for failing to prevent fraud for the past decade. And, you know, uh, that fine is actually almost as much as the McAllister Review recommended. And then, you know, we could talk about the billions that they forked out for bad PPE deals and track and trace. You know, the, the money's there when when they want or when they need to. And it, yeah, it, so this certainly is not enough. But what have they allocated? Is it 200 million over two years? Is that that's what they said? Yeah. Oh, yeah. None of us said, yeah, 200 million over two years. And, you know, when you compare that to what was BP's profits this year, 23 billion, Shell's 32 billion, you know, the rich keep getting richer. So many firms are posting record profits at a time of the cost of living crisis. Corporation tax is one of the lowest in Europe. You know, that's probably a good place to start when thinking kind of about money. Yes, but I, just, I do want to, it's something that uh, it's been flagged up to me in the past. We've talked a lot in the podcast about money and funding, but we don't often talk about how it's going to be raised. I mean, 
I was looking at UK national, sorry, the deficit for 2021, 2022 was 125 billion pounds. And I think UK national debt's about 2.4 trillion at the moment. So those are huge amounts of, those are huge money, amounts of money that we are essentially as a, as a, as a nation in debt for. I mean, where does the money come from? Where should the money come from? Should we be looking at taxation? Should we be looking at more borrowing? I mean, 2.6 billion pounds is not a small amount. So the uh, review made a suggestion to um, put windfall tax on um, some of the largest providers of both children's homes and also independent fostering agencies so that they should be levied to contribute. Um, Personally, I I think that that to begin with was a modest idea and it could have gone much further. Um, So we know that um, the Competition Markets Authority report last year you know, said that described this market, and I hate using the word market when it comes to children in care, but described the market as dysfunctional um, and, and out of control. And I think that the fact that the government was not even willing to consider that just shows that um, any claim to try to eradicate profiteering from the vulnerable is is just completely false, really. Um, you know, it's heartbreaking when we think about the fact that, for example, in in some unregulated placements, um, uh, that the ch- the cost per child is nine thousand pound per week. So when you think about that, you know, in in university terms, for a sixteen year old in care, three weeks in care could pay pay you know for a degree in the future. So it needs to go much further, and and I think that it could have and and should have. Um, considered the windfall tax, but I'd be mu- I'd be really interested to hear what other people think. I think it just in relation to the windfall tax, just to kind of give a bit of perspective on that, the review talked about that raising potentially hundreds of millions of pounds, which would cover the two hundred million committed, but I think would fall short of the two point six billion required. And just also just think it's important to note that the local government association, when the the strategy was published, they pointed out that there's actually a one point six billion shortfall um, prior to inflation. You know, uh, so. It's not that the 2.6 million was was going to be enough in the first place. Yeah, I think there are a few things here. I mean, I think for a start, it's probably quite helpful to think about public spending in a different way to how we think about household spending and budgets. And I think this is something that Southern England, for example, have done quite a good job communicating. There's a very immediate debt facing, for example, kinship families, and that has much more urgent consequences than this national public sector debt. And this kind of comparison of you know, the public purse acting like a household budget isn't often that helpful because governments have to, it, it, it just works very, very differently. Um, and I think particularly the amount that the government has pledged to put into this so far just smacks of the the challenges that the kind of way the government machinery operates at the minute has. Like we're talking about a department trying to commit to spending in between spending reviews it's limited. Josh wanted this really radical reset or this once in a generation sort of opportunity to, to reform children's social care. But the machinery of government just doesn't allow you to do that in 2023. And that's a huge problem that goes way beyond just children's social care. This is about how governments can work together and good, better ways to inform these strategies. Whereas at the minute we have this system whereby individual departments are pleading with the Treasury to hold this vice-like grip on the public purse and how it's spent. Um, and that's no way to manage social care. It's no way to manage health. It's it's a real kind of symptom, I think, of just the the really really awful way in which the kind of machinery of government and its funding operates. And in terms of even scrutinising, I mean, the public don't often know an awful lot about children's social care, how it works, why it's needed, and what it costs. And when you think about two hundred million pounds. It does actually sound like a huge amount of money. It kind of brings me back. There's normally a thick of it kind of quote for most contexts, but first series, um, the minister's talking to Ollie and they're talking about just a bogus policy they're going to come up with just to divert attention from something. And they said, yeah, we could throw a couple of million quid at that. And that sounds like a lot, doesn't it? So yes, 200 million pounds to most people sounds like loads, but the need is so great. Another thing to mention here is how an already, you know... (sighs) pathetic pot of money is going to be shared between 12 local authorities. Now, I tried to do a bit of homework before this and I may have got this figure wrong, but um, from what I can see, there are 333 local authorities um, in in England alone. And I think that we have to ask ourselves here, well, A, how is that funding going to be um, enough? Because I remember working for one local authority where they were spending you know, uh, uh, 
almost a million pound a year just on getting children with SEND, you know, with additional needs to school. So how is £45 million between, you know, each going to be enough? But secondly, who's going to pick those 12 local authorities? It's, it's enormously divisive to do this, you know. It's almost like having, you know, pet local authorities or favourites. We know that with the levelling up agenda, um, the funding that was designed for the neediest was not given to the neediest. It was given to those with the best networks. So uh, that is not enough. I think that in and of itself is something that is really overlooked in this whole report. Sam, I just want to move on and talk about what is actually being proposed. So promoting uh, and supporting kinship care, that features very prominently in the strategy. Can you tell us briefly, uh, high level, what's being proposed and whether it's welcome news? Yeah, sure. They've made some kind of quite specific commitments to kinship care, which I think are quite welcome, even if the kind of broader funding context is is really disappointing. Um, Particularly, one of the things we're quite happy about is this um, commitment to delivering a dedicated kinship care strategy. Um, It's something that, you know, we compared at Kinship for as part of the Value I Love campaign. And it's all really about giving kinship care the kind of national policy attention that it's never really had. Um, There's also a kind of training support commitment for kinship carers, which is kind of welcome to try and um, really reduce the postcode lottery. I think that kinship carers particularly sort of face and access to that. Um, around kinship care as well, the government's kind of committed to exploring a little bit more how they deliver and practice things like integrating family group decision making with earlier family support, testing out new kind of family network support packages, for example. Um, there's other areas where it has not gone nowhere close to what we'd really like to see, particularly around stuff like financial allowances or kinship care leave, which we might be able to dig into a little bit later. Um, and then other areas that are kind of missing in action completely, uh, such as kind of support for, for children growing up in kinship care. Sam, do you think the public understand kinship care as a concept? I think they're getting better at it. Um, I think we understand it a lot more now than we have done before. Um, just in terms of you look at things like the mentions that we've had in the media that we've kind of pushed quite hard to try and secure to kind of, I think, demystify and also give it some wording. Like, kinship care isn't afraid, is that necessarily, especially if you're a child growing up in kinship care? You're not going to sit there and think, oh, I'm a kinship child. It's, oh, I'm living with my nan. Or, and, and that kind of identity and that sort of interaction that has with the kind of public consciousness and understanding of kinship care is massive. So I think actually everyone kind of often they'll know someone where this has been the case they'll they'll have a friend or a family member where this has been the situation it actually feels really familiar when it gets explained it's just the term kinship care and that thinking of kinship care in its own right both in policy terms but also in the kind of public domain just hasn't really been there um but i think i think we all get in there thanks sam and one of the things i learned from the strategy is the extent to which children growing up in kinship care are exposed to poverty the strategy notes that 89 percent of kinship carers worry about their financial situation what level of financial support do kinship carers receive from government? Is it the same across the country? You mentioned earlier postcode lottery. No, it tends to vary quite a lot based on where you live in the terms of postcode lottery and whatever policies that your local authority may well have in place. Um, but particularly it's driven by what type of kinship carer you are, whether there's a legal order that's kind of securing that family arrangement or not. Um, and unlike foster carers, the majority of kinship carers, those who aren't kind of these family and friends foster carers and get that kind of, those kind of rights, they don't have a statutory right to a non-means-tested allowance. Um, and there are lots of you know perverse and often quite illogical quirks in the way the system operates now, which can sort of incentivize kinship carers to become foster carers in order to access support or for the child to temporarily go into local authority care in order to kind of unlock support. And are those issues going to be addressed in the strategy? Partly. I think we've taken some steps towards them. They've recognised that these incentives exist and that we need to close the gap for things like financial allowances. They've spoken a bit about um, scoping out some more work to think about providing kinship carers who have a child arrangements order or a special guardianship order. Um, With an allowance, we like them to think about actually all kinship carers, including those where those families don't have a legal order in place. Um, they've also said they're going to start encouraging local authorities to have an internal look again at more of their policies. And, you know, that that's that's not a solution. We need to fund local authorities in order to provide the, the, the kind of right support. But sometimes we're talking about the basics of does this local authority have anywhere on its website an explanation for what it provides for kinship carers? 
And that's the kind of thing that actually right now, tomorrow, it would be really helpful for any kinship carer to be able to find. Well, just staying on the subject, um, I mean, could it be argued that the focus of, of relying more heavily on kinship care is less about ensuring that children and young people receive the support they need and more about government meeting demands for care in the least expensive manner available? That's obviously a big worry. And we try to be as clear as possible all along that with kinship care, that, that isn't there as just a cost-saving measure. Um, and, and the government sort of nods to this a bit in their response. They say, that you know, while kinship care often offers a cheaper option, it shouldn't be seen as this free or nearly free option, and that saving should be diverted to support kinship carers and children. It's it's really important that we think about kinship care as well supported kinship care. We don't want to just sort of nudge the system and knock it towards funneling more and more children into kinship care if we're not confident we've given the right support to those families. It, it's it always kind of starts off with what's best for the child, and there's a kind of sequencing aspect to this where it would be really, really dangerous for us to push and push for kinship care before we've kind of put in the framework of support in place for, for that to work for our children and work for their families. Thank you, Sam. Just pointing back to the discussion on poverty we were having a few minutes ago. The review didn't, it didn't really challenge the root causes of poverty. It talks about the impacts that poverty has in terms of driving children into social care system. It cites the findings from the welfare, uh, Child Welfare Inequalities Project that found that children who live in the most deprived 10% of neighbourhoods are 10 times more likely to be looked after or on a child protection plan than children in the least deprived uh, 10% of areas. It didn't highlight the austerity agenda as um, driving um, the, the problems in, in the country in relation to poverty. But it did go further than the strategy because the strategy doesn't appear to recognise poverty really as a contributing factor in terms of demand for services at all. And the question I want to ask to, to Joe and Beck is, you know, how effective can early intervention and prevention work be if it's focused on the symptoms of poverty rather than the root causes? Yeah, unfortunately, I think that this kind of all suggests how normalised poverty has become in England. You know, I guess it's epitomised by so many people uh, working in poverty that uh big announcement or a big government policy like this can kind of sideline poverty in that way, almost as if it's just kind of in the background. And I think that, you know, the McAllister review mentioned poverty and talked about poverty, but the fact that it didn't mention austerity and just, I feel like that might've, you know, the government were never going to throw their hands up and say it was austerity's fault and, and that, that we're to blame. But I feel like because the McAllister Review didn't talk about austerity, it really didn't make the government address that point. It actually almost gave them a pass. So I think that, yeah, I think it, it, it's ridiculous that austerity and poverty in particular weren't uh, front and centre to this entire thing. I agree with Joe. And I feel like the fact that it was not named really just um, makes me doubt just how independent this whole thing was, because anybody who has spent more than an afternoon in children's social services um, on the front line will know just how absolutely devastating austerity is. And we know statistically that poverty pushes families to the edge. You know, it creates so many stresses, unstable housing, um, difficulties with, you know, mental health um, and so on. But not just that, it also makes them not able to meet children's basic needs. It makes them time poor. Um, so, you know, less available to, to be physically present for children. And I think that without addressing that, we are going to see more and more of a revolving door where the same children and families come through with the same issues. Um, but we, you know, all the social workers want at the end of the day, to put it bluntly, is not to be needed in children and families' lives anymore. We want families to go off and thrive and to be self-sustaining. Um, so that really should have been addressed. And there's a whole other issue here that we haven't covered today around no recourse to public funds and how, you know, the government is not willing to dig into its purse to to address poverty in, in families who are by no fault of their own not, not eligible for public funds as well. And Joe, I'm just coming back to what you were saying. I think you mentioned that, you know, had McAllister's review mentioned austerity, it probably wouldn't have had any big impact in terms of what the government did. I mean, if the independent review was asking for £2.6 billion and and the government have pledged £200 million, I don't think it would have made a big difference. Uh, I think it would have been kind of shutting into the void. Um, uh, that would be my take on it. But... Coming back to the, the what the review did recommend in relation to foster carers, they, they pointed to the need for 9,000 new foster carers and government has pledged in this area, they've pledged £27 million in the strategy for foster care recruitment. Do we know if that's going to be enough to plug the gap? I read um, a recommendation by the Social 
market foundation who said that there's going to be a deficit of 25,000 foster carers by 2026-16. So I think that shows that, again, there's a lack of ambition here. Why are we not, you know, we know what is needed. Why is that not being matched? But also when it comes to um, how, how the recruitment campaign will go and how it will be spent, I think it's really important not just to focus on recruitment, but to focus meaningfully on retention. Um, We know that 48% of foster carers are considering leaving the profession due to the cost of living crisis. Um, If that isn't urgent, then I don't know what is. Um, I I just also wanted to say that it's it's all very well and good committing to this, but what, what I really was hoping to see was a collaborative approach here. Um, I'm worried that the government, as it has in the past, you know, will get in kind of fancy consultancy services or marketing experts to drive this change. But in the past, um, I remember being really quite disturbed by one example of a foster carer recruitment drive that I'd seen where, you know, literally that advert was put on a bin truck And I think to any care experienced person, or in fact, anybody with an ounce of compassion or common sense would look at that and think, how dare you? You know, that just speaks to the lack of of value or care. So um, that there was very little on that. But I would, you know, really hope and ask that the government will work meaningfully with um, people who are care experienced to make sure any drive is uh, has common sense and has a heart. I'm not an expert on foster care, but what I will say is that it, this isn't just a question about absolute numbers. This is a question about getting foster carers who can better sort of support the population that we have of children in care at the minute and recognising the way that the system has changed and who it's supporting and who it's caring for. Thinking about where those foster carers are, whether they can take larger sibling groups, whether they are best supported to care for children who are particularly 16 and 17 so that we're not funneling more and more children into semi-independent um, placements. It's that kind of detail, I think, which is going to be really important for that side. And Beckett, you've spoken on the podcast before about the need for government to remove what we call careless placements for young people aged over 16. So just for a bit of context, Sam touched on it. What do we mean by that? Is this an unregulated care placement? What's it like to live in one? This is your experience. Um, and has a strategy sought to address that as an issue? All very uh, pertinent questions. Uh, I would start by saying no. This report has skimmed over the issue But just to give some context about unregulated placements and what they are, um, I I was in an unregulated placement myself as a teenager. And quite frankly, it's an experience I wouldn't wish on anyone. Um, At the time, I was living in a very rundown, deprived town. I won't name the town on this podcast. Um, And because of the lack of restrictions or regulations, I was living with you know, adult men as a teenage girl um, who had just got out of prison. Um, The first thing anyone ever said to me on my first day of living there was, if you want any green, you know where I am. Um, So, you know, there was drugs were easily accessible. Um, I I was living in a state of poverty, you know, day in, day out, where I couldn't even afford electricity half the time, which, you know, is... um, even even in prison, people can expect three meals a day, supervision. Actually, people in prison are entitled to care. Um, and so the fact that that same uh, is not applied to children in the care system is, is appalling. But we know that my experience was not unique. And whenever I talk about this, I really want to bang on and make the point that, it, that my experience was not historic. And actually, since then, well, uh, the use of unregulated has skyrocketed by 89%. 34 children have died over the past six years in these settings. We know children are much more likely to end up homeless with poor mental health. Uh, they're less likely to go on to pursue, you know, at work or education and so on. But um, just to bring this into the present day now, um, The government in 2021, in September, banned the use of these placements for children 15 and under, um, but did not extend that same, you know, protection to 16 and 17 year olds. So as it stands, children of that age can live in hostels, boats, caravans, barges with no uh, guarantee of adult supervision. And what we mean by careless is that Ofsted have recently put out, let's just, you know, say, very half-hearted and I would say dangerous 
standards to regulate them, in inverted commas. Um, but those standards do not go far enough. So we know that, for example, one of the one of the standards is that, um, or lack of standards, is that people who support children in these settings don't even have to have a DBS check, which, you know, beggars belief. Becca, just for anyone who's not aware, a DBS check, can you explain what that is? Oh, a disclosure and bar service a check. So kind of a check on criminal history. Uh, I, I may have said that wrong, so do uh, jump in if, if I have anybody. Um, there's also no need for, uh, well, children in these settings are responsible for their own health needs. And I'm not just talking about ringing up the dentist twice a year. I'm talking about, uh, you know, if a child has a life-threatening condition, there may be no one there to make sure they have medication. We've seen serious case review only a few years ago where a child aged 17 died, you know, needlessly because uh, they, they hadn't been given their medication for five months and so on. And Becca, has the strategy done anything to, to address these issues? What the strategy has done is that it's said very loosely all children should receive care, uh, whether they live at home or not, um, and that. They will be, you know, uh, rolling out standards for 16 and 17 year olds. So it's still backing the careless standards. But what's important here is that it does say they will there will be new universal care standards, which on the tin sounds great. But I think my fear and the fear of other campaigners is that does that just mean they will dilute all standards or weaken all standards? Um, that That's a question I, I think we need to consider very seriously. New doesn't necessarily mean better. And I think Becca, Becca's uh, story is incredibly, incredibly relevant. Um, we made an episode of the podcast, it was back this time last year. It's called The Kids Aren't All Right. If you haven't listened to it, please do go back and listen to it. It's really, really illuminating. Um, a huge, huge problem that hasn't changed. But Becca, staying, kind of staying on this area, you know, one, one, one issue that the independent review did go further than government has taken again, actually, is in relation to calling for care experience to be made a protected characteristic in law. Um, the government hasn't done that. It's cited sig- significant concerns, as it calls it, in the sector that self-declaration of care experience could increase stigma. So, Becca, you are a care experience person. What are your views on that? I think that I really respect the years of work um, and the love that so many care experience people have have put into campaigning on, around this issue for years. Now, um, I think the it was never going to be a silver bullet. You know, if we look back at the Equality Act 2010, has it changed things for women? Has it changed things significantly for disabled people? It hasn't been a, a, a magic yes, but it has certainly, um, you know, there's been some steps forward there. And I think that this was a real missed opportunity. Um, care experienced people face so many hurdles when it comes to every area of life, whether it's, you know, finding rent for um, a first deposit uh, well, finding deposit for, you know, first month's rent, whether it's getting the foot through the door in education it, after being, you know, exposed to trauma for so many years and their education might have been disrupted. Um, I think the other thing it could have done, um, and this might sound a little bit out there, but is really empower care experienced people and let them know what their rights are. Um, I, I didn't even know really until, well, my mid to late 20s i i never used the term care experienced and i, and I ne- you know i didn't walk around kind of uh, identifying as that i think because a that language was never used in the local authority i was in but i think b um i'd shelved that part of my life and it was almost so traumatic uh, that i just wasn't engaged in you know now i'm engaged in online communities and and i'm aware of that but i think that it would have a, educated the public as to what care experience is, but B, given care experience pe- person language to um, move forward with it. So it's, it's a real missed opportunity. In relation to what you're saying, the government are saying the direct opposite, that it could increase stigma, which you know doesn't really make sense for various reasons. There is obviously a huge stigma around young people that have to grow up in care and that affects you know uh, lifelong at times. But I mean, whether or not you declare your experience as care experience is your choice. Mm. So to, to this this argument that it's going to increase stigma, you know, as if it's something that, which is going to be foisted upon you, that doesn't, doesn't, well, as far as I can see, it doesn't really carry much water. I agree. And I would say, where is the evidence? Because they're, they're talking about, oh, some people are concerned that, well, tell me where these people are, because the majority, yes, the majority people? of people I speak to are in favour. But the final point 
um, that I really wanted yeah. to make on that was about um, the fact that an FOI request was put in to government to ask, well, how have care experienced stories or or anything that they've shared been treated? And apparently they have been since securely destroyed. So are we ever even going to see that evidence? That's, that's, I had no idea about that. Really, because I, I mean that genuinely is very surprising. That so this is this was the the views that went into the the review. Yes, and and I think it feeds into a more erasure of voices, and and it's unacceptable. Yes, I mean I don't. I mean I'm talking about going back to working in the public sector in Northern Ireland, civil service post. I remember you know, having to keep records of stuff for like six years as a sort of as a sort of a mandatory requirement. And I don't know if it's the same across the UK, but that seems really really shocking. Especially for people who it may have been the first time they've ever opened up about their experience. I know it takes so much courage to do that. And for those experiences to be wiped is a real is a real shame. And I think something the government should be ashamed of. Becca, thank you. And thank you always. I really appreciate your insights into these issues. And I'm aware that you're sharing and it comes that can come at a cost. So, again, appreciate you being part of the conversation. Um, Want to move on. In the strategy, the government states that it wants social workers with the highest levels of knowledge and skills leading child protection work. But it also explains that it intends to consult on enabling a broader range of practitioners to be caseholders for children in need. So reading that, the implication here for me is that supporting children in need is not necessarily considered a core social work role. Joe, does that not represent the risk? Yeah, yeah, it does. And and really... It seems like a government cop-out because they failed so consistently to support the workforce of social workers and they can't keep them. We have vacancy rate at the moment in children and family social workers of 19%, according to um, the Association of Directors of Children's Services. And that's up from 14% from last year. So that's raising scarily fast. Uh, but that aside, I, I don't know where the government think these other caseholders are going to come from anyway. Presumably, they'll be worse paid and potentially worse working conditions than social workers, or at least the same. And, you know, we've seen the crisis of the workforce across social care. It's not just social work. I think it's pie in the sky to think that they can just find these non-social worker caseholders. You know, much of the reason that social workers actually stay for as long as they do, despite the working conditions that they face, uh, which is a, it is a real crisis of working conditions in social work uh, at the moment. There's been some great research on that involving Baswa and Batspa University and uh, Germaine Revalier, uh, going back a few years. But I think much of the reason why social workers even stay as long as they do, despite these working conditions, is because they have the social work qualification. They've got that professionalism and that personal commitment that they've made through education. So, yeah, I, I just really think that this that this approach is a real government cop-out because they've just failed so consistently to support the workforce. Correct me on this if I'm wrong, though, because, you know, the government is talking about trying to move the focus away from crisis intervention. And I know there's been, you know, um, social workers have voiced concern during the review as if like the fact that social workers were responding to crises as if that was somehow a criticism of social work. You know, when when there aren't enough resources in the system, problems become crises, crises have to be dealt with. But if the government are saying, let's look at early intervention and prevention, not just crisis intervention, uh, you know, surely social work having a very clear role in terms of working with children in need and not just in terms of child protection work. That seems to kind of run counter to the overall uh, aim of the of the strategy to to get in early and to to address problems before they become crises. Have I misunderstood that? I'm fine being told I have. If I have, I mean everything you just said makes sense to me. I would I would agree. I think uh, I I agree with the points that have been raised. That the one thing I would also say is that the report has been consistently patronising and dismissive when it comes to social work. Um, Quite frankly, social work already, you know, social workers already have, you know, kind of all the target of of so much when it comes from press, politicians. And this could have been an an opportunity not just to shine a light on on what's going wrong, but actually there's so much good practice out there that happens day in and day out that we don't see in the headlines. Um, But that I think there is a risk here that if we dilute the social work role and kind of say, okay, well, let's. I think multi-agency working is great and crucial, but let's not just kind of uh, water it down to the point that any other profession can do that, because it would be unimaginable to ask a social worker today to go in um, and act as a, a school teacher at a local primary school and cover lesson plans. We, ne- we need to respect. Yeah. yeah. 
And the, the one area that always comes to me, and this is from personal experience, a family member who had a social worker and then the social worker, um, they didn't. And they had a key worker who I think had a healthcare background. And um, the thing that was so apparent to me and my family was the loss of advocacy. So the social worker arguing for better services, for more, um, you know, pushing for the best for the family member, whereas the key worker, you know, I'm not suggesting they weren't doing their job as they were supposed to, but it was kind of like, here's what we can do. There you go. And it's that loss of advocacy. And I think that's what is, we've talked about this in the podcast before, you know, advocacy is a key role of social work that is quite unique and isn't necessarily on the the radar of healthcare colleagues at all. Um, yeah. So in relation to that, it is, it does, it, it worries me. Um, but Joe, you talked about, we talked about the, the pressures on staff. Um, you've talked about vacancy rates. I think we've mentioned that earlier. The number of social workers leaving children's posts in English councils, it's at its highest point um, since data collection began. Um, stats for 2022 aren't yet available, but what I could find um, for the 12 months from the 1st of October 2020 to 30th of September 2021, almost 5,000 full-time equivalent children's social workers left their roles. I know the more up-to-date figures are going to come out later this month. To put that figure in context, the number of children's and family social workers in t- September 2021 was 32,500. There are 6,500 vacancies. Um, but the government has announced apprenticeships, so that's going to be fine. They've announced 500 apprenticeships. That's surely not going to have any tangible impact in terms of plugging the gap uh, of vacancies in the profession. No, no, definitely not. And actually not dissimilar to the discussion that was had earlier about uh, foster care. Is it's the, uh, you know, the retention is really something that's kind of missing here. We've discussed the working conditions and, uh, you know, I'm currently involved in two separate research projects looking at uh, CPD, so Continuing Professional Development Initiatives. And in both cases, social workers that I've interviewed, all they want to talk about are the workforce challenges, the workloads, the resources, the lack of time, the caseloads. I can't get them to talk about the CPD initiatives because their workforce complaints are just so staggering. You know, you've got social workers working until early hours of the morning on holidays. That's if they manage to take those holidays, weekends, lunch breaks. You know, considering the state of social work working conditions today, the recommended the recommendations that are like in this government response and actually in the review itself, they're frankly insulting. But in the same way that the review has been used for the past two years to deflect away from these issues, the government response, you know, is now going to be used for the next two years to deflect away from these issues as well. Anytime anyone brings up issues about working conditions, vacancy rates, retention and social work, they'll be pointed to, well, we've got this government response. We've got the early career framework, which I'm, I, we're going to come on to talk to in a bit, I hope. Uh, and then, you know, by then we'll have a new government anyway. Who knows? Um, Joe, when you're doing your work and you're um, interviewing your respondents, do they ever mention bureaucracy? I dare say they do. Uh, yeah, they do. But in, in some ways, I don't know, I, I feel like bureaucracy is a bit of a red herring. You know, it, it exists in so many different ways. Oh, okay. I think we can look at how to make systems work better and we can look at how to make them work smoother. We can put more control in the hands of professionals. But the history of the last few decades is that efforts to reduce bureaucracy tend to lead to more. And we're often told that reforms are going to put power back in the hands of social workers. But at the same time, we have a never ending range of kind of new frameworks, standards, guidance, inspection regime, regimes that are thrust on us. So basically, you know, you can have more agency and control, but only this way and only if you record it in this way. And I guess, you know, the government response, I, uh, I didn't mention bureaucracy, really. It, did, it didn't really go into it. I don't think it did. I don't think it did. I'll just just come back to on the you know Basel had the eighty twenty campaign. You know, trying to flip the balance of you know social workers spending eighty percent of the time on paperwork and twenty percent of the time with service users. You know, and and turn that on its head. You know, that would suggest at least what's coming through the professional association that bureaucracy is a challenge, a big challenge from uh, you know in terms of workforce challenges. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that it's not a challenge, but it's about what we consider bureaucracy. And you know, I I feel like that, you know, the. Lots in lots of this, the, like a lot of this, the first step needs to be sorting working conditions and supporting social workers. I feel like the idea of kind of fixing some ill-defined concept of bureaucracy without sorting basic working conditions of those involved first, it, it isn't really going to work. And that's not to say that campaigns to flip the amount of time social workers spend with people rather than in systems aren't worthwhile. But I just don't know if always bureaucracy as a term and the way we frame that is the most helpful way. And especially not until we can actually get a workforce that isn't on its knees and can actually engage with the kind of initiatives that we're talking about in relation to reducing, quote unquote, bureaucracy. Thanks, Joe. Um, Sam, 
we talked about vacancies in social work. Uh, do you see the knock-on impacts for foster and kinship carers? Do you see how that's affecting, uh, you know, are kinship carers getting the support they need from social workers? I think like almost any child or adult who has kind of had involvement with children's services, kinship carers always have a story or several to tell about social worker churn and what that's meant for them and, and their family arrangements. I think given sort of my work predominantly around this kind of public policy sphere, I'm thinking really about what that turnover and what that workload capacity issue feels like in terms of the overall service that you're providing for kids of carers and it's a real challenge from local authorities who have enormous problems recruiting and retaining social workers or who are relying on agency staff to think about those kind of wider more structural changes to practice the building of new cultures or processes that I think can support kids of care differently when you've got that kind of instability in the workforce and we like to point to sort of real pioneers, local authorities who are doing new and interesting stuff around kinship care, but it's really hard to incentivize and push other local authorities to do that stuff when they're firefighting, when they've got these funding crises and when they've got the, this turnover of the social work workforce that don't allow them the stability and the breathing space they need to think about more strategically, how do we better support children to remain within their family networks? On the point of bureaucracy, there is something that I did see in the report, in the strategy, uh, which suggests that the government may be loosely looking at it. It says where there was a recommendation to introduce a mechanism for challenging unnecessarily work, unnecessary workload drivers, um, they're saying that they will in- establish a national workload action group from 2023 that will include sector representatives, people with lived experience of children's social care um, and its objective is to identify workload pressures they feel are unnecessary that do not lead to improvements in outcomes for children and families. Now that you know on the face of it sounds positive. I think that we need to move with caution here though because um, what may be seen as unnecessary to some is crucial to another and I'll point out an example of that. So during the coronavirus um, the government enforced kind of amendment regulations. Uh, I think they are uh, they were called coronavirus twenty twenty amendment regulations. But you'll you'll have to forgive me for not having the exact title with me at the moment. But what those um, amendment regs did was, on the face of it, they were designed to um, take away you know quote unquote unnecessary bureaucracy. But actually, those um, regulations were really crucial. And, and what the government did was say, OK, we're going to um, an attempt to freeing up more time. We'll take away, you know, um, certain safeguards in place. So uh, visitors to children's homes, you know, uh, were, were reduced in kind of frequency. And I think we need to look really carefully that I have got to the point now that wherever I hear, you know, let's get rid of bureaucracy. I think, is this actually a thinly veiled attack on, on children's rights? I may be wrong. Becca, thank you for bringing that balance. That is helpful. Okay, so staying with the pressures on recruitment uh, and retention, the government has proposed a new early career framework for child and family social workers. Uh, The aim is that, I'm going to quote here, expert practitioner level of the ECF will enable social workers to further develop their expertise, creating a cohort of highly trained social workers capable of dealing with the most complex cases and spreading best practice, end quote. Joe, do we have enough at this stage to know uh, if that initiative is going to work? Is it needed? Is it going to be useful? Uh, yeah, I mean, this DCF, I, I might go on for a bit here, so please stop me uh, if we hit time or I'm rambling. But uh, I, we don't know exactly what it will entail, although we do know the length. It's going to be five years, so two years initially and then an extra three years. That's And this is going to replace the currently one-year ASYE, the Assessment Supported Year in Employment, so it seems a bit backwards to me to know the length before the content, but there's groups meeting behind closed doors to decide this all for us, as is usually the case. Uh, but the aims are explicitly, they, they do say they're around improving retention. And we so we can look at a history of similar projects and with a high level of certainty, we can say that the ECF won't achieve these aims around retention. So back that up, back that claim up. How come? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so the early career framework is based explicitly on the early career, the early career framework in social work is based explicitly on the early career framework for teaching. And there's no lack of studies and stats showing what a train wreck that has been. You know, uh, 
the one that I've got written down in front of me is that seven, only 7% 7 of teachers felt that the early career framework has been having a positive impact. And I think that really just sums up how it's going. And, you know, notably, this has done nothing in education to solve their recruitment and retention crisis, which is not dissimilar to our own. And yet here we go again, like colleagues of mine in education, they honestly can't believe that we're going down this route. You know, we have examples of the NAS, the National Assess, no, the National Assessment and Accreditation System. Hope I got that right. I mean, the less said about that, the better, but the 24 million wasted on that. You know, it, and I think it's the point I want to make is that a lot of the same people who were involved in that, uh, which is now ended, uh, are now responsible for the implementation of the early career framework. So I wouldn't hold out hope that this is going to be great or different. You know, the government response explicitly states that it's going to build, uh, the early career framework is going to build on the NAS and the assessment models from that. Um, so yeah, and, and you know, even projects that people generally think work well, like the ASYE, uh, resource, the resource and workforce deficits mean that it's growing more and more impossible for employers to provide the time and the workload relief required for that. So the idea that replacing that one-year ASYE with a five-year program is frankly ridiculous. And, and just as one final point on that, because uh, I could go on about this for ages, is that you know this, this is further cementing the segregation between adult social work and children's social work. And you know we've got the, because this early career framework is only going to be for children and family social workers, the ASYE, according to the, the response, is going to continue for adults. Uh, so on a positive note, the I guess the ECF might lead to more social workers going into adults because when you've got the decision between a five-year pro program when you start as an adult social worker and a one-year program, or five-year program when you start as a children's social worker and a one-year program when you start as an adult pro, uh, social worker, you know, I, I think a lot of people might look at that and say, well, I'm going to go on the adult social work route because that's got a lot more flexibility. I know obviously there's a million other things that come into making that decision, but I do think that it'll become a factor and, uh, you know, that that could be a boon for adult social work, which is also having a retention and recruitment crisis, although not to the extent that um, children's are. Thank you, Joe. And that was fairly brief and that, that was very insightful. Appreciate it. Becca, um, one issue that the review recommended change on uh, and the government didn't follow through on was in relation to removing the, the role of independent reviewing officers, IROs for short. Um, is that a welcome? Uh, is it welcome, sorry, that that hasn't uh, been removed, that role? It certainly is. But what I would say is that I was at a meeting earlier this week and people understandably were saying you know oh, it's a sigh of relief um and, you know acting really grateful as it because this hasn't been removed but I would argue we don't need to we shouldn't be sat here feeling grateful we should be outraged that this kind of thing was implemented in the first place so I know firsthand that when children come into the care system often they come literally empty-handed and the only thing that they have in this world is their rights and the fact that the IRO role has been attacked is a direct attack in my opinion on their rights now um, I think that the IRO role is you know it has a long history and it's complex and um, I, I can't do justice to to that role here today but what I will say um, is that IROs scrutinise children's care plans and, and provide that kind of objective scrutiny that is so, so crucial. Make They make sure that there isn't any drift or delay on those plans, that there haven't been any oversights. Um, and they are, you know, an advocate who um, are there to stand up for and with children. And, and I think that what's really important to note is that as a child in care, you can often feel like the whole world is against you. Um, and there's so many labels, there's so much stigma. So to have a role that is specifically for children um, is just so, so important. And the, the review suggested having the IRO role removed. I think the argument was that it wasn't sufficiently independent from the um, local authority system. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But what it was suggesting was adapting the Children's Commissioner Help at Hand service to provide an advocacy role. I looked it up. Help at Hand. It's a small service. It's currently got four members of staff. It would have been an absolutely monumental change, hugely ambitious. And you can see, yeah, there would have been a lot of problems there potentially. In, in a previous role, I sort of worked quite a lot with character and people. And I, I think I think it's a fair reflection to say that on the subject of IROs, they, it was about 50-50 split between young people I'd worked with who had never heard of their IRO, who didn't know who they were, um, 
often if they've been a bit of a prompt of, oh, it might have been the person who chaired your meetings every year, that might have come, come, might have come through. Or they were the single best person who had absolutely gone above and beyond to enshrine their rights and make sure that they were listened to. So I think, I do think it, it's welcome that we've retained this 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 role, then this kind of focus on children's rights and, and scrutiny. I do think that that shouldn't just be a sigh of relief, as Becca says, this is actually right. Well, how has the IRO come under attack from three separate reviews now, I think? What is it about that that's not working? Can we make sure they are actually independent and not entering the room wearing the same lanyard as the social worker from the local authority? Um, it, it, this isn't necessarily a job done sigh of relief tick box by finding out it's a what is it about the IRO role that that simply isn't doing what it needs to do for, for children in care thank you sam now i'm gonna to have to draw us to your close but i've got one final question the strategy it's called stable homes built on love and the word love is used frequently throughout the review report and the government strategy the strategy contends that kinship carers can help children maintain connections with people they love and with their family. Now, I can understand that. That makes sense in, in a family context. But Becca, outside of kinship care arrangements, and I'm thinking particularly of children living in residential care settings in particular, how can staff supporting them show them that they are loved and that they are valued and that they are, you know, they're worthy of love and and. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a, sorry, I'm going to get myself a wee, wee bit choked up because I think this is something which is just, um, you know, the vulnerability of young person in care uh, in in a residential care setting. And there is obviously, you know, very strict, um, you know, professional boundaries in terms of what social workers can and can't do. But that sense of a, a, a little one or a teenager growing up without a sense that they're loved, without a sense that they're valued, like the impact that will have on your development is is huge. So just to end the ramble. What can social workers do? How can social workers better um, make those young people feel loved, valued and worthy? I think the first thing to do is ask children and young people themselves because, you know, children in care are all individuals and all have their own unique history, not only of trauma, but a unique history of the way in which they genuinely feel loved. That will be very different from from child to child. I think often it's in the little things. It's in... Um, having someone there to, you know, meaningfully celebrate your birthday or to cheer you on at a violin concert or whatever it is, or someone who just knows you, who knows your birthday, you know, who knows what you you like and what you don't like. But I think the one thing that I would say is uh, for there to just be understanding. So um, I remember uh, in in care one time when a social worker was calling me up and being like, you know, where the hell are you? You're 15 minutes late to your appointment. And all she could see in that moment was the empty chair in front of her. What she didn't see in that same moment, it's almost like if this was some kind of like movie scene and and the camera could switch, was that I was there um, with my hand cupped to the door waiting just to hear when the corridor would clear. Because, you know, I was living with scary people that I was scared of who had their own complexities who were fighting in the corridor and I was genuinely too scared for me for her you know going to that appointment would have been driving there turning up and sitting in a room probably fretting about a lot of things or other caseloads but for me it was a scary journey going down a corridor and down three flights of stairs so there needs to be genuine trauma-informed understanding and also the very final point to end on here is you described the, you said that the title was stable homes built on love well I think stable homes built on air is a bit of a better description because where's the money that's going to make this love thrive thank you Becca thanks so much Joe thanks Sam for taking part it's been great to have you both uh, on the podcast the first time Becca it's always good to have you back thanks so much for taking part today thanks for listening thank you thanks Good talking.